in the early chapters of Second Samuel, uh, we saw how God had promised His chosen king that He would bring uh, His enemies under control. Uh, that He would be with David and lead God's people in overcoming the opposition against the kingdom, against God and His anointed from the outside. But over these last few chapters, what we've seen is that although there seems to be uh, now uh, very little to jeopardize the kingdom from the outside, uh, the great challenge and the problems and what assaults the kingdom is coming from the inside, from the king himself, from David. What that's been showing us and revealing is that This kingdom that God has promised, uh, this kingdom that would bring uh, peace, fullness, wholeness to God's people where they would dwell with Him eternally, forever, David is not going to be the one who is able to bring that about. In fact, no mere man can bring about the kingdom of God, we must look for and hope for another. And these chapters that we've looked at last week and this week are showing that and putting it right in front of our face. We need a Lord and a King who is greater and more superior than David. We need one who is going to uh, rule in wisdom. We need one who is going to rule without guilt. And we need one who will rule with justice. So if you would, look with me in chapter 14 of the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, This is on uh, page 265, if you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats. We're going to look at the whole chapter uh, here this morning. Remember where we left off last week uh, after Amnon, David's oldest son, assaulted Uh, Tamar, uh, one of David's daughters, uh, uh, Tamar's brother Absalom, uh, killed Amnon and then fled. And now we're picking up in the the aftermath of those those events. So follow along with me, starting there in verse 1 of chapter 14, as we hear from the Word of God this morning. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom, And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. 
Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and, all, and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then he said, Please, uh, then she said, Please let the king invoke Yahweh your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As Yahweh lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. Yahweh your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the outcome of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of each year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head, two hundred shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field's next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it all on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to, to be there still. 
Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Let's pray. Our God, we are uh, desperate for you uh, to instruct us and to teach us, to nourish us and feed us, to open up our hearts, that we would see you for who you truly are, that we would see ourselves for who we truly are, and that in that truth and in that light we would behold Jesus. And that we would rest in Him and cling to Him and hope in Him. We pray this morning that You would do that. Holy Spirit, accomplish Your eternal purposes among Your people this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Uh, Now kids, this morning, if you want to uh, keep track of words, I'll give you a couple of things. Words and pictures. So if you want to keep track of words this morning, uh, I want you to listen for wisdom for guilt and for justice. Wisdom, guilt, and justice. If you want to draw a picture, you can do one of two pictures, or both if you're, uh, if you're eager. One, you can draw me a picture of the woman from Tekoa coming before to meet David. Or you can draw a picture of what happens at the end when Absalom sets Joab's field on fire and Joab comes with the, the field ablaze. So... You can bring uh, your word count and your pictures to me after the, after the sermon's over. Um, uh, so as we enter into uh, this, this chapter, uh, it's flowing on the, hill, the heels of, uh, of what Absalom has done in the previous chapter and David's response or lack thereof. It's important for us to understand the context and David's attitude towards Absalom because that kind of drives what's going on in this chapter. And if you notice at the end of chapter 13, it says, Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. That's Amnon that he's mourning for. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now, what does it mean that David's heart longed to go out for him? Similar language comes up in verse 1 in chapter 14. Joab, the the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. What does that mean? Is, Is David fond of Absalom? Does he miss him? Is his heart longing in a positive way for Absalom? It's possible. But that, that longing to go out or going out to someone could be viewed favorably, or it could be similar to going out to someone in war, in an antagonistic sense, and a desire to want to, to punish or attack or destroy. What is the, the connotation of what's going on here? Well, if you notice, after everything Joab does, and David finally does bring Absalom back into, into town... What's he say? Don't let him come into my presence. And he remained out of David's presence for two years. 
That doesn't sound like someone who was positively inclined and was desperately longing to see Absalom again. It seems that what David's heart is, is it's against Absalom. And the reason that he didn't pursue and go out after him with intensity anymore is because his heart was comforted after Amnon's death. But that's what brings us here. David is against Absalom. That's the heart that he has for his son. And Joab recognizes that, and Joab wants to change things. And that's what leads to him getting this woman, the woman from Tekoa, to come and talk to David. The question then becomes, is, is the, the, the change of course of events and what Joab is seeking to do, is this flowing out of wisdom? Is it a good thing? You see, wisdom comes up in this passage The author is wanting us to consider and evaluate is what is being presented before David and his course of action. Is it from wisdom or not? Do you notice how the the woman from Tekoa was described in verse 2? Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman. Then later, as she's speaking to David, notice what she says in verse, verse 17 about David. Your servant thought the word of my Lord the king will set me at rest. For my Lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. See, that's, that's at the heart of what biblical wisdom is. It's not just head knowledge, but it's understanding what is right and what is wrong. What is according to God's word and what is not. And applying it and living it out in your life. And in fact, as she talks about David again, notice what she says in verse 20. That Joab did these things in order to change the course of things. Your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. And David goes along with the woman and with Joab. How do we understand this? Is he acting with wisdom or not? Because the, the Lord and King of God's people must rule with wisdom. That's the kind of king we need. How do we understand what's going on here? How are we to evaluate David's actions, Joab's actions? Well, did, did any of this sound familiar to something that we saw a few chapters ago? Uh, an instance where, where someone sends a messenger to the king, tells the king a story in order to affect and impact the king's heart. That sounds familiar? Who was it before? The sender was God. The messenger was Nathan. And he was seeking to convict David of his sin and call him to repentance. In this instance, who is the sender? The sender is Joab. If we compare the two senders, something begins to be revealed. What do we know about Joab and his character? Joab is not a good guy. Joab is not a guy who acts with integrity, not a man who can be trusted. He's already up to this point been involved in the death directly of two named men, uh, Abner, Saul's uncle, and Uriah. Remember, Joab was the one who delivered the orders and the multiple men who died with Uriah. Uh, Joab later, as this plays out, we're going to see Joab is in many ways in for him 
self. But also notice as we, we think and are comparing these stories, think about what actions Joab takes. As he's speaking to the woman of Tekoa, to, uh, from Tekoa, and he puts the words in her mouth, it's clear the author wanted us to know that. This, these things didn't really happen. Joab told her what to say. He told her how to present things before, uh, before David. Notice, remember what, what it is that she, that she says in verse 2. Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself as oil, with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. I want you to pretend to be something you're not in order to deceive David. She's here described as a wise woman. Remember we encountered somebody last week who was described as crafty or wise, Jonadab. Remember what he did? He also gave advice to someone else to pretend to do something. To pretend to be ill so that you can deceive the king and that Tamar will come into your presence. You see, when we begin to start comparing what's going on in this story to what's preceded in the context, we see we are not to recognize that what's going on here flows out of wisdom. And David, by following and listening to and being persuaded by this story and the actions of Joab and the woman from Tekoa, David is showing himself that he is not one who is operating with wisdom. David is not one who can discern good from evil. David is not one who is leading God's people properly. You see, as we see, David begins up to this point. He's kept Absalom out of the, uh, the, the community of the people of God. Uh, we're going to visit whether David's actions are appropriate and how he should be responding. But again, in this instance, what we fail to see David doing is seeking the Lord. Before, it was clear that God was the one who was instructing him. But as uh, one theologian that I was reading this week was reflecting on this passage. He said, in Nathan's story, Nathan is seeking to uh, rouse up or convict the conscience of David over his feelings. But with this story, what Joab and the woman from Tekoa are seeking to do is to rouse up David's feelings over against and to push down his conscience. David seems to recognize that Absalom has done something wrong and something needs to be done about it. But he puts that aside. As we see later, he brings Absalom back. It's, it's very confusing, it seems. I mean, how could David be in this place? Do you remember the David that we encountered just a few chapters ago? In light of Nathan's story, David was humbled. David recognized his sin. David humbled himself before God, acknowledged his sin. We began to see him demonstrate and live out the fruit of repentance. And it looked like David had turned around. The David of old that we had seen was back on the throne, ruling and leading and shepherding God's people. Only now we find him. Last chapter. 
and this, making horrible decisions. It's as if he's forgotten all the lessons and all the mercy and all the grace and how sufficient his God is. I mean, we would never do anything like that, right? Or are you like me? And you know all too well what it's like to have God in His grace and in His mercy apply deep lessons to your heart and you feel like you're really growing and understanding in it and being shaped and transformed only to turn around in the next day or the next week to find yourself plunging into more sin. Failing to look in and hope in and keep your eyes on the one who has shaped and transformed you. And here we see David doing the same thing. He's not exercising and living with biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is to live and orient your life consistently focused and pointed to God. Evaluating your actions, evaluating your heart, evaluating the messages and influences around you with the revealed Word of God. And when they do not come into conformity with God's Word, they're to be rejected. But we fail to do that. And as we see here, both with our lives, when we do not seek God in wisdom, we suffer. David's not doing that. Not only is he suffering, the nation will begin to suffer, as we'll see in just a little bit. It's, it's clear we, we need one who always, who infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably lives according to the wisdom of God. The good news for us is that we have such a king. We need a king, a Lord and king, who will rule his people with wisdom. And we have him. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Remember what we saw over Christmas? The prophet Isaiah said, one from the root of David would come who would rule and reign over God's people forever. And who was he going to be? What name was he going to be called by? Wonderful Counselor. The one with the perfect wisdom of God. And as we look on the life of Jesus, the way that we see him living is he always does and lives his life in conformity to and pleasing of his Father and his Word. Rejecting Satan's attacks with what? The Word of God. Rejecting Peter's rebuke with the Word of God. We need one who will rule over us, who will be our Lord and our King, and who rules us with wisdom. And God and His mercy, although David failed, and any mere human that we put our hope and our trust in will fail, but Jesus never does. He is the perfect Lord and King who always rules His people with wisdom. This lack of wisdom in David's life and in his heart that, that flows out, not just in this passage, but in the, the passages that we've seen before this. And it, and it leads to David falling into sin and guilt. 
See, for the king to bring about God's perfect and everlasting kingdom, it's going to be necessary that he be one who rules and leads his people with no guilt. There's an emphasis in this chapter as well and a focus on the guilt or lack thereof of the king and his son. Notice that, look in verse 9, what the woman from Tekoa says. The woman from Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. Be guiltless. See, what she's recognizing and at least communicating there is it's important that God's king and the throne that he rules on be without guilt. That it be sin-free. Because it's only as the king is seeking his God perfectly that the kingdom will come in its fullness. That the people will flourish under the rule and the reign not just of the king, but of, of God himself, who is our ruler and our king. But what we, we see here is that David isn't guiltless, is it? She speaks it and wishes and longs for it to be true, but we know it's, it's not. Absalom, later at the end, he, he talks about too, as he finally gets Joab to listen to him, and he says... Therefore, let me come, this is in verse 32, let me come into the presence of the king, and if there is any guilt in me, let him put me to death. We'll look here in a little bit whether that's repentance on Absalom's part or not, but there's at least an acknowledgement that with guilt for sin comes penalties. And what have we seen already? David is full of guilt. David is a sinner. David has violated God's law over and over and over. We saw it last week. We're seeing it this week. It characterizes David's life. He's a sinner. It's, it's interesting as we, as we see David as he's ruling over his people. He's the king over the people of God. And the sin of the king brings about the suffering of the people. God did forgive David. He took away his sin. He said, you will not die. But we saw that there's still going to be consequences. Consequences for David. Consequences for his children and his family. And for the people of Israel as this transpires over the next few chapters. But notice, the sin of the king leads to the suffering of the people. How in the world then will we experience deliverance? How will we experience salvation? How will our suffering be taken away and our guilt be taken away if the king is full of guilt himself? If the way that he rules and the way that he lives doesn't deliver us, but it plunges us further into complications. You see, David can't deal with his own sin and his own guilt. David can't take away the guilt in his own family, much less the nation. We need one greater. 
We need a Lord and a King who is guiltless. Like the woman of Tekoa was hoping for. And the good news is that we have one. Jesus, God's chosen King. The heir of David. The one who fulfilled the promises of God. He has come to His people. Not a mere man, but God in the flesh. Who perfectly lived His life before His God. Who perfectly lived as the true and better Adam. The perfect Israel. The perfect King. He's without sin. You see the difference? This sinless king, this guiltless king, instead of bringing suffering to his people, he suffers for his people in his perfection. His sinlessness and his suffering brings about the salvation and the deliverance of his people. Paul talks about Jesus. He says, He who knew no sin became sin. For us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. David and his sin and the way that he ruled and sat on the throne brought conflict and struggle and difficulty and suffering and pain for His people. But when we look and hope and rest in our Lord King Jesus, the guiltless one, the sinless one. In Him, we find salvation. In Him, we find deliverance. In Him, we are delivered from our sin. In Him, David finds hope for his guilt. In Him, all of Israel can find hope for their guilt. And you and I can find hope for our guilt because as we look to the sinless and guiltless one and we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Him and what He's done for us, just as we affirmed this morning, that kind of faith justifies. That kind of faith, as we look and hope in Christ, He delivers and saves us. You see, if, if any king is going to bring about the kingdom that God promised, where tears are wiped away, where mourning and suffering are gone, for where our rebellion against God is delivered, we must have a Lord and a King that rules with wisdom. We must have a Lord and King that rules without guilt. And we have Him in Jesus. But it brings up, again, another question here in this, in this context, remember what, what we have is we have uh, someone close to the king who is fled from the presence of the king out of fear and is exiling outside of the people of Israel and the king is angry with him. that sound familiar? Anybody's life also resemble that? Remember David. David had to flee from the presence of the king. David, who was like a son to the king, had to flee out of Saul's presence and into exile in nations outside of Israel. Why did he do it? Well, David did it. He'd done nothing wrong to Saul. Do you remember that? Why did David flee? David fled to avoid injustice. Because Saul was wrongly seeking to take his life. But here, what about Absalom? 
Why is Absalom fleeing the presence of the king? You see, it's because Absalom wants to avoid justice. Let's look and see. Because we, we are desperate and we're going to need a lord and a king who rules his people with justice. Remember what Absalom says at the end of the chapter. When he finally gets Joab's attention and Joab comes, the smell of his barley burning and roasting in the air. Absalom says, why have I come from Gesher? It would have been better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there be guilt in me, let him be put to death. If there be guilt in me. You remember how David responded in the face of his sin before the Lord? He says, I have sinned against the Lord, my God. Here, Absalom's attitude is one of, as we'll see as it continues to, to go on, as the, the narrative unfolds in the remaining chapters, Absalom's not repentant at all. Absalom doesn't think that he has done anything wrong. Why am I staying outside of the king's presence? I've not done anything wrong. What I did was justified. Amnon deserved to die. The king should do nothing to me. And notice what David does in verse 33. After Absalom finally comes into his presence, he bows himself before the king, and the king kisses Absalom, forgiving him. Welcoming him back into the kingdom. Notice what David does. A guilty, unrepentant man is allowed and welcomed back into the kingdom. Is that right? Is that just? Is David just being gracious? Remember we talked about this a little bit last week in David's response and his lack of response with Amnon. What about here with Absalom? Remember the, the, the story that the, the woman uh, from Tekoa told David. She talks about, she's trying to compare this example, this imaginary example of what happened between her sons and the loss of life and one who has been banished outside of the people and that with Absalom. But notice, comparing those two cases, it's not apples to apples. The two sons were in a quarrel and one killed one without premeditation. You see, the law actually has, the biblical law has provision for that. When a, a, a death happens like that, it's called manslaughter. And there's a place that that person can flee to avoid suffering death for that, that murder. Um, so, really, what the woman was seeking in that instance was justice. Because those... The, the rest of the clan should not have sought to put that guy to death. There were other penalties associated with a non-premeditated uh, manslaughter like that. But that's not the case with Absalom, is it? It didn't just happen spur of the moment. Do you remember what we saw last week in the chapter? It said Absalom hated Amnon. And he planned. He planned his murder for two whole years until the time was right. 
He deceived Amnon under the, the ruse of there being a party and a celebration. He gets Amnon drunk, and then when he's not paying attention, his men come in and ambush and slaughter Amnon. Was Amnon guilty? Yes. Was it, was it Absalom's role and his place to take his life? No. Absalom committed murder. Premeditated, intentional murder. And the penalty for that kind of man is death. But notice what the woman from Tekoa says. She says in verse 14, We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Her understanding of God is that God would never take the life of a sinner, would he? He provides means for one to be delivered and brought back into the people. Right, David? He did that with you. And he did, didn't he? But there's a difference between David and Absalom, isn't there? One of the things that sets David apart from Saul and future kings who will also mess up is the repentant heart of David when his sin is exposed. And he comes before the Lord and he acknowledges his sin and he calls for mercy. And it's the repentant sinner that God does not put to death. It's the repentant sinner that the Lord allows access back into his people. But Absalom here isn't repentant. And David here allows an unrepentant sinner just overlooks his sin. David failed to seek justice for Tamar last week. And he was wrong for doing that. And here, David again fails to seek justice for Amnon. He fails to do what was right. Would the Lord have said, Absalom also deserves to die? We don't know. And neither does David, because he never asked. He never sought the Lord in this instance. And so David overlooks the sin of an unrepentant man and allows him to come in to the presence of God's people. And that is a violation of his goodness. He is no longer a just and righteous king. But what do we need? We need a Lord and a king who will rule over his people with justice. Again, we grapple with this. How does it make sense? We've already seen God overlook and take away the sin of a guilty man and put away his penalty. How can he do that? How can God do that and not be guilty in the same way that David is of injustice? It's because of the Lord and King that God chose to send to his people was one who was always ruling with wisdom, who was guiltless. And God overlooked David's sin. And God overlooks the sin of any who come to him in faith and repentance. And says, I am going to take the death of my son in your place. God is both just and the justifier 
of the one who puts their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus. But remember what John tells us in 1 John chapter 1. This is the message that we heard from Him. Who is the Him? It's Jesus. John was one of Jesus' authorized spokespersons. He was a follower of Christ. One entrusted with the message of Jesus to communicate to His people. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. That God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness... We lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. The condition is confession. The condition is to look and hope in the grace and mercy of Jesus. And when we confess our sin, we find forgiveness in Christ. But if like Absalom, we say... What sin? I've done nothing wrong. There is no hope. There is no hope for such a one. You will face the penalty that you deserve. But as we look to the wise one, the guiltless one, the just one, we find forgiveness for our sins because He has died in our place and removed the just penalty that we deserve. Repentant sinners who are hoping and trusting in Jesus can find their way into the presence of God. That is the good news of the Gospel. So David rested and hoped in. That's what Absalom rejected. And that's what God in His mercy and His grace wants us to see this morning. We need a Lord and a King who rules us with wisdom, who rules us without guilt, and who rules us with justice. He lived perfectly, and He died in our place. Praise God that it wasn't David, but it was Jesus who is our true and perfect King. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You for the good news of the Gospel that we see proclaimed throughout the Scriptures, shown to us here by contrast with David. We pray that You would continue to point us to the sufficiency of Jesus and our total need for Him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.